Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of our Lord. Well, here in this passage, uh, Paul seems to be presenting uh, three different arguments, not separate arguments, but three arguments to help you and I, as Christian people, do that which is actually, well, seems impossible. Uh, to do something that seems like uh, it's climbing Mount Everest, so challenging it is. And the arguments that Paul presents are arguments to help you and I, my brother and my sister, to love someone with opinions different than our own. That's actually quite hard. I mean, we can joke about it and say, yes, indeed, it is hard for a PC person to love an Apple person. And it is very hard for a Ford person to love a Chevy person. And we can, we can joke about that. And it's funny. But this passage is about differences that we have as Christian people. You see, we can have some pretty powerful opinions about matters that are really not central to Christianity. There are items all around us, all around us, that good theologians actually call disputable matters, matters for which the Bible allows us to differ things for which the Bible allows us to hold uh, different opinions. And even though this is true, these disputable matters, these matters of opinion, they, they can actually tear us apart as a church family. And now, surprisingly, here at the center of Paul's solution for us is nothing less than something that we already think we know so very much about, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's here uh, in verse 9, and that really is the solution to this problem of not being able to have differences and hold those differences as Christians. Now, before we dig in, we need to admonish one another. 
This passage should not be read as a new weapon that you now get to use to, uh, uh, against someone who holds a different opinion. Or we can't read this passage as a new uh, shield or a new uh, defense mechanism that you can use to protect yourself from someone who has a differing opinion. You see, Paul, it would seem, is addressing these individual factions. He is calling out those who hold this opinion, those who hold that opinion. But he's not doing that so that these individuals would understand themselves in light of someone else, but rather so that these individuals would understand themselves as the part of one single body, the body of Jesus Christ, the church body. And this means that Romans 14 is not a vindication for one person's opinions, and nor is it a legal sanction against another person's opinions. Rather, it is a beautifully honest picture of the body of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what I mean by that before diving in. Have you ever been with a dear friend who confesses to you that they struggle with a particular problem for which they've never confessed to you before, but you know very well that it is exactly the same struggle that you have yourself? And as your friend confesses this, you actually uh, uh, feel uh, suddenly uh, open. You can talk about the struggle and, and, and you, you actually are very uh, grateful. This can be a very purgative moment in your friendship. And you say to your friend as they've confessed that they have this struggle, you say to them, I'm so glad that you confessed this. I've wanted to share this myself, but I've lacked the courage. And I'm so glad that you have not lacked the courage because of your bravery now. We can work on this struggle together. And I want to suggest to you that Romans 14 uh, does this for the Christian Paul calls something out that is not just an issue with the Christians at Rome. He's calling this out because it's a problem that all of us feel as Christians, even Christians here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. And you should take note of the honesty of Christianity, that the Holy Spirit knows that we can sometimes become upside down in our opinions, and we love those opinions more than we love our brother and sister. And there's a sense in which for this to be talked about openly... It's such a beautiful thing within Christianity. And so for, uh, for a Christian, uh, I want us all to be, to be very encouraged that the Bible would speak so frankly about this. But perhaps you're here this morning and you're not comfortable calling yourself a Christian. And perhaps you have avoided the church as uh, someone who doesn't follow Jesus or maybe someone who does follow Jesus, but you've struggled with this reality of being a part of a church, a church that you don't like. It may be that you've always found Christians, when they get together, to be a rather backbiting bunch of creatures. People who snipe at one another over very insignificant things. And you are holding yourself aside saying, I don't want to be a part of a group that's like that. And sometimes denominationalism has actually been your evidence for this view to stay away from the church. Well, Romans 14 is an admission that you're actually on to something. Paul is saying, yeah... Yeah, you're, you're on to something. Uh, human beings do tend to struggle over very minor differences. And the church is, after all, made up of human beings. But Christianity acknowledges this weakness, addresses this weakness. And if you've held yourself apart from the church, you actually should reconsider that resistance to a body that not only addresses this matter, but offers a spiritual solution for this matter. 
Well, what then is this passage telling us? This passage, I think, is simply saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually provides the church room for differing convictions. And Paul makes three attempts to prove this. In verses 1 through 4, he uh, actually uh, reintroduces us to the welcoming power of God. He reintroduces us to the one who welcomes. You see in verse 3, It's God who welcomes. And then in verses 5 through 9, Paul speaks to us about uh, the one who rules. The Lord Jesus is mentioned no fewer than seven times in the middle of our passage. And then finally at the very end, after Paul reintroduces us to the one who welcomes and to the one who rules, finally in the last two verses, he reintroduces us to the one who judges. Welcomes, rules, and judges. Now, this sermon is going to hurt just a little bit right at the very end. It's going to sting all of us. That's, the, that's my first warning to you. My second warning to you is this. The first main point of this sermon is pretty long, but two and three super short. All right, don't pass out. It'll be okay. Verses one through four, the one who welcomes. Let's spend some time here, and then we'll, we'll progress more rapidly. Now, Paul really has no direct evidence, not any direct evidence that we know of, but he seems to assume that there is this temptation among Roman Christians to quarrel over opinions. You see that in verse 1. Individuals in the church are making distinctions between disputed matters. They're dividing over these matters, and then they're drawing conclusions about one another as a result. Now, this is not merely holding different opinions over things for which the Bible is unclear. It is allowing these differences to do something in the heart of believers, to do something in the heart of the community. It's allowing these differences to harm the loving unity of the church body. And Paul has already shared with us in Romans chapter 12 that Christians are to be the kind of people who live in harmony with one another. Romans 12, 16. And that not only that, uh, Christians are to be the kind of people who love one another with brotherly affection. How tender is the regard for one another, Romans 12, 10. And so it's no surprise that quarreling over opinions would be on Paul's radar. So even though uh, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that Paul has that this quarreling is happening, notice how quickly he assumes that it is. He assumes that it is. What is he referring to? Well... The congregation in Rome, we know, is made up predominantly of Gentiles. And the Jewish Christians are actually a minority in the congregation. However, these Jewish Christians stand out in a particular way. They stand out because they have these certain practices that serve to, in a way, define them. They're the minority, but these practices seem to be the kinds of practices that are worn on their sleeves. Their habits are so distinct that they give rise to the attention of the majority. And we can almost hear a Gentile Christian uh, say to the Jewish Christian sitting next to him in the pew, you are a minority here, my friend, but your stand on this matter gets an awful lot of attention. You're a minority here, my friend, but your, your stand on this matter, boy, it gets an awful lot of attention. And before we start applying this to our own day, the things that are happening right here at Covenant, Note this, that that as we we, uh, peer into this passage, uh, John Stott says that really the matter in Rome is the matter of uh, the Jewish Christian population in the church having a continued conscientious commitment to certain practices. 
I actually didn't think I'd be able to say that at the pulpit, but I just did. Let's try it again. Continued conscientious commitment. These practices are practices that the Jews, that uh, having become Christians, they're having a hard time uh, letting go of them. And these practices have something to do with eating. Look at verse 2. And they have something to do with commemorating uh, holy days or treating holy days in a special way. That's in verse 5. But the result is that the church body, Paul says in verse 1, is quarreling over opinions. Now, there's something to take note of here, and this is very important. First, this is not a matter of works righteousness in the church at Rome. Nobody in the Roman church body is relying upon certain practices or certain commitments in order to secure their salvation. No one is doing that. That's not what this chapter is about. That's not a problem in this church. But second, this is also not a matter of sin, a moral failing on the part of either side, or that someone's opinion is actually unacceptable before God. If it were a sin, Paul would call it out as a sin, but it's not a sin. And those are two things we need to take note of. It's not an issue of works righteousness, and it's not an issue of doing things that are unacceptable before God. Those things are in a different category. So let's let's see then what the quarreling is is about. And Paul says, first of all, that there are some people who tend to choose freely. You know, Paul doesn't give them a name, these people who choose freely. You'll understand what I mean as I I go along. In verse 2, Paul tells us that there is a person who believes that he may eat anything, including meat that's purchased in the market that may have been devoted to idols. This person, this person chooses freely. He or she simply walks into the market. They make their purchase. And Paul emphasizes the anything about these kind of people. And there's a similar kind of person in verse 5. There's a person who esteems or judges all days as if they're exactly the same. All days alike. And just like the person who treats all food the same way and is comfortable eating uh, anything, meats and vegetables, this person here in verse 5 doesn't elevate a particular day as sacred or special, but rather esteems uh, all days the same. Paul emphasizes the all days. So there is a kind of person who eats anything. There's a kind of person who treats uh, all days the same. This is the, the kind of person who, who actually, well, believes that they may choose freely. There's another kind of person that Paul uh, refers to in the Roman church. There's, there's another kind of person who doesn't choose freely, but rather chooses restrictedly. Uh, Paul calls them in verses 1 and 2 a week. But the passage uh, doesn't excuse us to make a moral judgment here. When he calls them uh, weak, we're, we're not to look at them as inferior. Paul tells us that there is a person who does not eat just anything, but rather limits himself or herself to just vegetables. And so when they walk into the market, uh, they uh, avoid the meat and they only buy vegetables. Now, uh, Paul doesn't really need to explain why this is. It's actually well understood. They do this because they want to avoid eating meat that has been dedicated to a foreign god. 
The, the pagan rancher would, uh, would take the, uh, the animal and kill the, or butcher the animal uh, and would dedicate the first cut of the meat to an idol and then the rest of the meat would uh, make its way to the, to the market for sale. And meat packaging in those days is not labeled. You don't know. In fact, the meat's not packaged at all. You walk into the market and you don't know if this meat is a result of meat that has been, uh, that has been uh, dedicated to a foreign god. And because of this, some Roman Christians would only purchase vegetables in the market. And by the way, this isn't an argument for vegetarianism. It, it just isn't. And we can presume that they would eat meat, but they'd only eat meat that they themselves produced from their own heads of cattle. It's a matter of avoiding the indirect support of pagan businesses. And there's a person uh, who uh, actually, in verse 5, will elevate a particular day in the calendar over another day in the calendar. They treat that day in a special way. It could be that they're treating the Sabbath, Saturday, in a special way. But most likely not. It's more likely that they're esteeming days that are recognized in the Jewish calendar, particularly days of fasting or days associated with special festivals that are well known in the Jewish calendar. And so when that day comes around, some people cannot help but alter their ordinary practice in order to commemorate that day. They choose restrictedly. Now, these are not minor matters. And they might seem so to you. But think about how often these believers would go to the market. That was a common occurrence. Or think about how many times a year a special event in the Jewish calendar would roll around. These two are frequent occurrences. And so uh, you would meet a brother or a sister in the market And now, all of a sudden, you're looking at their basket and you feel their eyes look at your basket. Or you invite a brother or sister to an event and you realize, uh, completely without intending it, that the the Jewish calendar prohibits the very activity you're suggesting that your friend participate in. And furthermore... And keep in mind that, that a, a person is, this, is not always consistent. So a person may be free in one of these matters and restricted in another matter. Or they could be reversed, restricted in the former and, and free in the latter. And that makes it more complex. People, people aren't consistent that way. And not only that, uh, opinions change, don't they? So uh, something that you used to be free about, now you're restricted. Or something you used to have a restricted view about, uh, now you're free. Uh, So uh, human beings together are not entirely consistent. The human beings by themselves are not entirely consistent. But these are not, however, mere faux pas. People are really taking offense against one another in the church at Rome. In fact, Paul describes just how serious this matter is. Now, I know that already over the course of this sermon, each of you has been jumping to examples in our own life together as a church body. I just know that's happening. As some of you are already thinking about decisions that we make about alcohol consumption or decisions that we make about the educational choices of our children or decisions that we make about uh, the kind of uh, music and media and culture that we intake. 
or even decisions that we make about uh, how to properly honor the church calendar. I know you're thinking that way, but be patient. There are contemporary applications. What I want us to hear, first of all, is that this is actually a very serious matter because you can look in verse 3 and you see that Paul is describing something that is absolutely tragic. In fact, if we're not weeping in verse 3, something is probably wrong with us. There's a body of believers, the church of Jesus Christ, the, the bride of the perfect, righteous husband. And they're united to their husband. And they're united to one another, both by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And these people will live together, not just in the present, but they'll live together for all eternity. But here in the present, they have an opportunity to be swept up in the mission of God in such a way that their life together can be a powerful testimony of the gospel to their children and to their city, to their neighbors. And what are they doing instead? Well, the ones who choose freely, who buy any meat in the market and do so with a good conscience, and who treat all days the same, again, with a good conscience, well, they, those people, they're despising those who make choices in a more restricted fashion. They scorn them, and they look down on them contemptuously. And you know what? The ones who uh, make their choices in a more uh, restricted manner, who don't shop meat in the market, and who don't treat all the days the same, but instead honor specific days, what do they do? They actually judge those, pass judgment against those who make their choices more freely. They put them on trial, and they pronounce sentence, done. They're just small matters, aren't they? They're matters for which the Bible gives us freedom both ways. And when we read verse 3, there ought to be an astounding sadness. Paul makes no comment on the merits of individual arguments. His most powerful illustration is that one Christian despises another and that one Christian passes judgment on another. That's his indictment. He is not interested in getting into the weeds to discern exactly who's right and who's wrong. What does God think about this? Paul's very clear that, that, that a person whom you are despising because of their restricted view on what God allows, well, that person is he or she in your head. That person whom you're likely to despise because of their restricted view, what does Paul say? Well, that may be true. But God actually welcomes them. And that, per that person on whom you pass judgment against because of their seemingly carefree attitude to holiness, well, you're thinking about that person. God welcomes them. The focus of this particular word, this word to welcome, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of word that is actively uh, taking someone, bringing someone to themselves, even sharing a meal with them. And it's how salvation is described in Romans 15, verse 7, that Jesus Christ has welcomed you, and Jesus Christ has welcomed me for all those who profess faith. 
And furthermore, the person you despise and the person you pass judgment against, Paul says, God actually upholds that person, causes that person to stand. And even if you look at verse 5 of our passage, it sounds as though the opinions are different, but the one you're despising or the one you're passing judgment against, God actually vindicates that person, lifts them up that they might stand. I want to suggest to you that this is Paul's warning to you. And it's a warning that he is commanding to you based on what God does. And it's a warning to me, a warning that uh, he is commanding me based on what God does. God is doing something, and Paul is calling us to imitate God in this something. God has welcomed you, and he's welcomed me. And it's so very hard for us to welcome those with whom we have different opinions with. The one that you're tempted to despise or the one that you're tempted to pass judgment against is exactly the one you're to welcome. This is one of the most startling aspects of the Christian life. I know that I'm someone whom God actually should not welcome. That is me. I'm someone whom God should not welcome. And to be perfectly honest, the more I get to know myself as a Christian through the Holy Spirit uh, working in me, the more I see that his love for me is absolutely beyond comprehension. Why did he welcome me at all? And if this awareness is really happening in my life, Paul seems to be saying to me that I ought to be able to do that which is so much smaller, to welcome my Christian brother or sister sitting next to me in the pew who has a different opinion than mine. They're not relying upon their opinion for salvation. And they're not doing something that God clearly opposes in Scripture. And yet, me, the one who has been welcomed, struggles to welcome others. And it's so much more comfortable to despise and to pass judgment. The grace of the gospel shown to me as a Christian, welcomed by God, actually opens the door for me to do the impossible, to welcome rather than despise and to welcome rather than pass judgment. Now, I I told you that first main point was lengthy. God is the one who welcomes. What about the one who rules, verses 5 through 9? I spent a great deal of time reintroducing to us, as Paul does, the one who welcomes us, and now I want us to pick up the pace. As Paul builds his argument, he begins with the reality that we experience in the gospel. We have been received by God, brought to him, taken by him, uh, fellowshipping with him. And Paul simply restates this in a couple of different ways, having reminded those who despise and those who pass judgment that God has done neither of these things to you, but instead welcomed you. Paul now discusses how God has welcomed us, and he's welcomed us in the work of Jesus our Lord. We've already been commanded by Paul to not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit and to serve the Lord, Romans 12:11. And in Romans 12:1, he famously says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. And right here in the center, seven times Paul points us to the centrality of our Lord's work. And each time it is to emphasize the rightful authority of that Lord. In verse 9, the authority of the king is clearly stated. Christ died and lived again, that he, uh, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 
Paul reminds us that nothing short of the death and resurrection of Jesus was required for your salvation and for my salvation. And through his death and resurrection, we have life today. He has the right to be our king and to rule over us. Not only did he die because of my penalty of sin, but the life that he lives, he lives in place of my life as the righteousness of God that's applied to my unrighteousness. His death redeemed my life. His life is my perfect satisfaction before the sight of God. I live before God because my opinions, uh, not because my opinions are right, but because the opinions of Jesus are not merely opinions, but the very perfection of righteousness that covers me before the sight of God. And the same is true for your opinions. You live before God not, not because your opinions are right. Now this resurrection authority that Jesus has is what makes the imagery of 7 and 8 so compelling. Paul says, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Romans 14, 8. And he's repeating what he said in verse 7. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. Do you, do you really believe this as a Christian? That, that you don't live to yourself, that you don't die to yourself, that Jesus is your Lord and that you owe everything to him? Do you really believe that this morning as a Christian? Well, guess what? Your brother or your sister who has opinions that are a little bit more restricted than yours, they believe that too. And your brother or your sister who uh, seems a little bit more carefree than you do, well, they believe that too. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. We all believe that as Christians. It's the mark of being a Christian. We know that we aren't uh, our own, but we belong to Jesus Christ. Over and over again, Paul affirms that on both sides of the equation are people who are serving the Lord. I mean, in verse 6, Paul says that each person ought to and does pursue their opinions as a means of honoring the Lord. This is such an affirmative statement. Paul actually says better things about people we dislike than what we say about them. He is affirming that both sides of the debate, those who eat anything and those who don't, those who treat all days the same and those who elevate one particular day, he says that all of them are honoring the Lord. And it's how, as it's remarkable how quickly we want to jump to conclusions and we, we want to define our brother or our sister based upon that differing opinion. And Paul, he doesn't do that. He says, these are indeed brothers and sisters of yours. And they do indeed seek to honor the Lord. How sad that we're not willing to do the following. The first is this. Isn't it sad that we're not very willing to give our brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt? To put away our contemptuous attitude? To put away our quickness to judge? We're very quick instead to bank on our preferences or our inclinations or our cultural background or our traditions and to not stop and consider that our brother and sister, they're, they're simply seeking to honor God. And we despise and we pass judgment quickly and we're very slow to give one another the benefit of the doubt as Christians. 
And that's the first sadness. The second sadness is this. How sad it is that we are not willing to dig deeply into the Word of God ourselves. To make the Word of God our own point of discussion. To seek the clearest expressions of God in His Word that our opinions would truly be opinions that arise from contemplation of the Word of God. You know, we can bemoan the lack of biblical literacy in the world and we can bemoan the lack of biblical literacy in our brother or our sister. They're too carefree or they're too restricted. But how about bemoaning our own lack of biblical literacy? Instead of despising and instead of passing judgment, how about we find our own noses deep in God's word, reading, studying, praying, contemplating? And, and why is it that so often our fellowship is more about our opinions and not as much about the Word of God? How sad that is, too. But this passage actually is not about our sadness, is it? It isn't to Paul. Paul's purpose is to make it known that the resurrection of Jesus actually provides the church room for these different convictions. He's pointed us to the one who welcomes, and then he points us to the one who rules, and now he finishes by pointing us to the one who judges. And it may sound very harsh, but it's not. God has welcomed the person we despise or judge. This person is seeking to honor the same Lord, but expressing that in a different way from us, without working for their salvation and without sinning before God. And the final warning for us, Paul gives us by quoting Isaiah 43, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And Paul tells us in verse 12 exactly what he means by that. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Does that mean that God will vindicate my decision? Yes, God will vindicate my decision. Well, perhaps it might mean that, but it also might not. He may not vindicate your decision. Well, what will he do? The most certain thing that God will do is he will vindicate his own opinion. Is that better to you? It should be better to you. At the final judgment, God vindicates uh, not my preference, but God vindicates his own opinion. And this ought to be a relief to us because so often our opinions can actually own us. Do you know what I mean by that? Our, Our opinions can actually exert a power over us. And what Paul is saying is Paul is saying, uh, listen, my brother or my sister, you actually don't have to be right on this. And I'm saying that to you. You actually don't have to be right on this. And you ought to hear that as a relief because our opinions can own us. If some of you have been thinking about contemporary examples during this entire sermon, let me show you how this works. Some of you have very strong opinions about the consumption of alcohol or about abstaining from alcohol. And some of you have very strong opinions about uh, educational choices that you have made and that you hope others would make. And some of you have strong opinions about music and media and culture and your stance and the stance of others in that regard. And some of you have strong opinions about seasons in the church calendar, what ought not and what ought to be recognized. And I want to say to you, just as I say to me, if you're a believer, in the final judgment, you will not be condemned by God. You will be acquitted because of the redeeming price that Jesus paid with his very blood. It was poured out as a punishment that you deserve. 
And his perfect righteousness, the righteousness that he always has, is a righteousness that actually covers as a mantle your unrighteousness, which means in the final judgment, you will not be condemned. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that so beautiful? Are your opinions worth more than that? Will you take those opinions with you to that great moment? Or will you, by God's grace, drop them here and now? Isn't it wonderful that the Christian will not be condemned because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ? Isn't it wonderful? Then why? Why hold so tightly to your opinions? It's the very resurrection of Jesus itself that provides the church room for holding different opinions. Let's pray together. Father, we sensed already that this is a practical passage and we would appeal to you that you would work in us in such a way that you give us a great deal of liberty and freedom from opinions that we hold that are not explicit in Scripture. We pray that you would increase our fellowship in that manner that we would heartily love our brothers and sisters even if their opinions are different than our own. And we pray that you would guide us in your revealed will, your holy scripture, that we would come to know more and more about you. We ask that you would do this to the glory of Jesus our Lord. Amen.